Kevin, I just wanted you to know I had already planned on saying this before your comment. Last week when I went back and reviewed my sermon, I realized that it was seven minutes longer than normal. I promise not to do that this week. <laughs> seven minutes is not a long time unless it's seven minutes added to an already normally long sermon. So, um, one, uh, two other little quick things before, uh, before I start into my sermon. We were sitting back here, and I don't know if you saw me. I was trying not to be uh, disruptive, but I started cracking up because while we're doing communion, um, uh, Pearl says to me, Grandpa, referring to my communion, she goes, where's your Cheez-Its? <laughs> Just in case... Anyone here thinks I have been exaggerating for comic effect the talks about the road work and traffic up by my house? It is almost the entire front page on the, uh, the News Herald this week talking about the problems going on there and the semis having those issues. So I'm not exaggerating these things when I tell them to you. It's for real. The other week... I was going to the conservation club in the morning, and I was uh, meeting Matt there, and uh, just do some some target practice. And uh, I got when I was getting up in the morning um, and getting ready, I saw this shirt sitting on the top of my stack, and I thought, "Oh, maybe I'll wear that shirt this morning." And uh, but then I realized the night before um, I had taken a shower and then put on a t-shirt and worn it for about three hours before I went to bed, and it was still out, and I thought, ah, I don't want to dirty up another shirt. I'll wear this one to go out and not, not just get another one all sweaty while I'm out at the range and stuff. So I didn't wear this shirt when I went to the range. When I got there, guess what shirt Matt was wearing? He was wearing this shirt. So we're shooting, and I said, oh, hey, I almost wore that shirt this morning. And uh, then we'd been there for a little bit, and I looked over, and across the way, I saw Neil's truck. And I thought, oh, I've got something I need to return to Neil that he had given to me. I'll go over there and give that back to him now. I walked over there. Guess what shirt Neil was wearing? This shirt. Now, if one person had worn a shirt like that, then, you know... That's it's kind of nice. If they saw two people wearing shirts like that, it might not even catch anybody's eye. But I thought, if there were three of us all wearing the same shirt, people would be like, okay, what's, what's going on here with these shirts? And it would get their attention, and maybe it would be something that would get them to say, hey, what's, uh, what, what's up with you guys in this shirt? And uh, maybe be some good uh, reaching out for our church. They might be inclined to check it out because they see a lot of people representing one entity. I've told you before that there are some aspects of Scripture that I find particularly interesting. All of Scripture is important and should be read regularly. But to me, it stands out 
pretty big in my mind if a passage of Scripture has one of two different traits. The first of those is if you read something in Scripture that is absolutely nowhere else in Scripture, if there's a passage that, especially in the Gospels, if it's just only put in in one place and nobody else talks about it, it makes me think, okay, why was this important to this one person with the Holy Spirit inspiring them to include this passage? The other is kind of the reverse of that. It stands out to me also very significantly if all four of the Gospels talk about one particular passage in Scripture, one event, one teaching, one something that they all feel the need to go over. It's like, ah, perhaps this is the way that the Holy Spirit kind of underlines a passage or hits it with a highlighter and says, yo, hey, you might want to take note of this, especially. Today we're going to look at one of those. But it isn't, it isn't a passage that has some direct teaching of Jesus or a hard doctrine or something of that nature. It is a narrative of the actions of a couple of men immediately after the death of Jesus on the cross. Turn with me to John chapter 19. Verses 38 through 42. This is right after Jesus dies on the cross. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This same incident, merely the taking of Jesus' body to the tomb, is in all four of the Gospels with slightly less or more information in each one. John is the only one of the four who mentions Nicodemus and that he was there and that he helped bury Jesus and he provided the spices. From Matthew, we read that the tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. We read that he was a rich man. And we read that he was a respected member of the council, that is, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel underneath the Romans. From Mark, when you look up this passage in Mark, we learn that Joseph of Arimathea was not only a member of the council, but that he had been, quote, looking for the kingdom of God. And that he too, he had he had to sort of like, buck up his courage 
to go and ask Pilate. It says uh, he took courage. He had to kind of work himself up to go and do this thing. We also learn that Pilate was actually surprised to find out that Jesus was already dead. Because normally it took lots longer than this when someone was crucified. Pilate was so shocked, he had the centurion come in to verify. He's like, okay, do we know this guy's dead? They're not just trying to get him down off of there early, right? So he had gone to ask for the body, and Pilate was like, what? He's already dead? And then he gave permission. From Luke, we learn still more. Not only was Joseph rich, he was well-respected, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. But we also learned that he had not consented when they had voted to put Jesus to death. With this additional information, it helps to fill in the story of this passage. And this passage is one that, you know, we might be tempted to just kind of glance over this and and look at it as, okay, two guys buried Jesus. Now, why should we pay more attention to this than just, okay, these, there, there was two disciples of Jesus that came and took him and put him in a tomb. Why should we do more than just sum it up that way, other than the fact that Scripture tells us quite a bit more than that? One reason is that it was a fulfillment of prophecy. It was a prophecy about the Messiah in the Old Testament from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It's an interesting tidbit because this was by no means their intention. It wasn't like they were saying, hey, you know, if we put him in your tomb, that'll, that'll fulfill this prophecy from Isaiah. Because you're a rich man and you'll be buried there eventually. So let's do that. It would have made more sense in, in, their, in their customs and in their traditions to have buried Jesus with his family, to take the body up to Galilee and bury him there. Or, since that's quite a ways away, to at least even just take him to over where Mary and Martha and Lazarus had a family tomb. They were really good friends of his, and they were only three miles away. It would have made sense for them to bury him there. The reason that they buried him where they did was 100% due to expediency. You see, it was almost the Sabbath. It was the day of preparation. They, they had actually broken the legs of the two thieves who were on the crosses so they would die quicker so they could get the bodies off the crosses because you couldn't leave them up there over the Sabbath. And they needed to get him buried before the Sabbath started, which would have been at sundown, which was rapidly coming to them. So they went and they said, hey, can we take his body down? And it says explicitly right there in the text, it says... (laughs) I've gotten ahead of myself. 
verses 38 and 39. It was literally right there. The place of crucifixion was in a garden. And in the same garden was a brand new tomb of the rich man, Joseph. But what to me is the most helpful part is this entire episode in which all four Gospels include this little tidbit that we learn about both men who stepped up and took care of the body of our Lord. And this is down in 38 and 39. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. We need to have a really quick refresher about who Nicodemus was. We first learn about him very early on in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Here he went genuinely interested in Jesus' teachings, but he went to him at night to do it in secret. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was another powerful man like Joseph of Arimathea, another member of the Sanhedrin, another man who came to believe in Jesus, but like his friend Joseph, he was a believer secretly. Now, I don't have a bad thing to say about Nicodemus. In John chapter 7, we see the Pharisees and other members of the council plotting to kill Jesus, and Nick, he speaks up for him. Although, I mean, he kind of does it in a way where he's just kind of speaking up for the law and what is right, and, and he's using that to defend Jesus. But he says in, in John 7, chapter, chapter 7, verses 50 and 51, Nicodemus, who had gone before him, or who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They were just plotting, let's just kill this guy. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what our law says. And as often happens when a good man stands up against angry bad men, he got himself a nice verbal bloody nose for it. In verse 52, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They snapped right back at him. Both of these guys were believers in the Lord. Joseph was specifically called a disciple. But they had been trying to walk the thin line between their privileged positions of wealth and power 
and being a follower of the Messiah. So far, this was something that they could do. There's nothing inherently wrong with a Jewish person being a member of the Pharisees. Some of them were absolute hypocrites, but a lot of Pharisees just really cared about following the Old Testament law. They got a little overambitious with how strict they had put the rules on it, but being a Pharisee was not inherently a bad thing. Neither was it a bad thing to be a member of the Sanhedrin. It is actually a very good thing when good moral people take up positions of leadership in their communities so that they can actually stand up against evil decisions. They might not always win, but it's best to have somebody there who's saying, whoa, wait a minute, this isn't right. We see a clear example of Nicodemus attempting to assert his position for the defense of good. He was walking the line trying to retain his rank and position and do the right thing. Eventually, however, this came to a head. And neither of them could remain secret Christians any longer. It was time for Joe and Nick to step up to the plate and do the right thing, regardless of their personal consequences. My study material has a couple different interpretations for the scripture which tells us that Joseph did not consent to the action of the Sanhedrin in condemning Jesus. One is that he wasn't even present, which is entirely possible. They held Jesus' trial at night, which was illegal in their society. You couldn't do trials at night. Why? Because people wouldn't be available. People are asleep. People don't even know that the trial's going on. That's why they said, hey, this has to be done in the daytime. It is entirely in keeping with the, what we know of the people who condemned Jesus that they would be like, let's have this trial right now in the middle of the night and we're only going to tell the people that we know are going to be on our side of things. We'll just leave Joe and Nick out of this and whoever else might be on their side, not even tell them this is going on. The other possibility is that he was there, but he was overruled. He said, whoa, no, this can't happen. And they said, too bad, step aside. At the last, however, these two good men could keep silent or even ambiguous no longer. They stepped out in faith despite their fears of what would happen to them, and they did something which would make them stand out to those who hated Jesus. Instead of just letting his body be dumped in a mass grave of criminals, they went despite their fears and they publicly aligned themselves with the Christ. Joseph went and officially requested permission to bury the body. And they procured cloths 
a burial shroud, and spice-infused ointment in which to wrap the body. This would not be a secret. We read in all four Gospels that the women who had come from Galilee with Jesus, they're named in at least two of the Gospels as Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph. They followed them to the tomb. When they took the body and buried him, these women followed him to the tomb because it was right over there. There had been soldiers and even Pharisees who had stood witness to Jesus' death. They would have seen this action also. This was not something they could hide and do in secret. The people who hated Jesus and his followers would have seen them do this. And there's no other way I can think of at this point to publicly align yourself with Jesus than to take this kind of care of his body. The soldiers even knew which tomb Jesus had been placed in. They sealed it. And they had a guard posted there lest anyone try to steal the body. They knew what happened. Now, Joe and Nick were 100% declaring themselves to be on the side of Jesus. And they didn't care what it cost them at this point. It was more important for them to follow their conscience in what was right and put a distance between themselves and those who had chosen evil. They were as much as wearing their shirts that said, I'm a follower of Christ. For all of the world to see. They were showing their colors. And this is actually essential. There can be no such thing as a completely secret Christian. It is not required that you wear a light blue shirt that says Unity Christian Church on it. Although, if you don't have one and you'd like one, we still have two left back there. I think we have a small and a large. See Kathy afterwards if you'd like to get one. It's not required to wear a shirt that declares, hey, I'm part of this. It is not required that you go out and stand on a street corner and preach loudly to the public. It isn't even required that you stand up in some public venue and declare that you're a Christian. There are many people in China and in the Middle East, who you would only likely know that they're Christians by their actions. Now they would surely tell you, if they knew you and grew to trust that you weren't trying to set them up to get them killed by the, the government or radicals, they might even step out and share the gospel with you as a stranger, just stepping out on faith. But the surefire way to know if someone is a Christian is by their actions. 
Nick and Joe, they didn't stand up and say, I am a follower of Christ, but their actions may as well have. John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This doesn't negate the concept that we are not to deny the name of Christ. And we certainly have to be sharing the Gospel when we have those opportunities which come along. But as the old saying goes, actions speak louder than words. Let's pray. Father God, Thank You so much for the blessings You've given us. Thank You for the strength of these two men to stand up and show who they were and that they loved You. Lord, help us to stand up and take actions to defend righteousness and goodness on Your behalf and where possible to share the Gospel with others who see the love that we have and want to know where that's from. Lord, help us to have the strength to wear our colors before mankind who is growing more and more to hate You. We love You and we praise You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.